0: Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Thanks to the team for leading us. We so appreciate each and every one of you. And if there's anybody out there that's uh, watching for the very first time or joined us or just found us, we want to extend a special welcome to you. We're so glad you're here. Uh, My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you have any questions about the church, please don't hesitate to reach out and let us know. Today, we're going to start the second installment of our series entitled The Gospel According to Luke. Uh, Last week, I made the argument that... Genre is really critical to understanding our faith because genre is an agreement between author and recipient. And I made the case, according to Richard Burge's work, that the gospel accounts are ancient biography. And what that tells us is that the subject of the biography is what's most critical, And for us, that means that Jesus is the subject of the text. And so anything about the text that gives us any spiritual enrichment, that's wonderful. But the intention of the writing of the text is to tell us about who Jesus is. And the second thing that was really critical in that study was to recognize that the subject is posing a question. Is the subject worth imitating and emulating? That's the question that is posed for us. And so I would like to encourage us all to once again consider no matter where we might happen to be, where we come from, is Jesus worth imitating? That's the question that's put before us in this particular study. I've entitled this second message, Lord of All. Now, it's so hard for me to say that phrase without thinking about my past and my evangelical Christian upbringing. And so I'm sorry I'm going to do this to you, but this is what I think about when I hear the phrase Lord of all, is he Lord of all in your life? Is your Now I show that to you uh one because I think it's kind of fun to reminisce and you'll get a little bit of an insight into the world in which I grew up in but I imagine many of you probably have a past and a history a religious context that formed and shaped your understanding of these words, these concepts, these ideas. And so that's really the second reason why I show that is to recognize that we also come from a place. And so when I say Lord, and when we start to use words like Lord and Christ, Messiah, Son of God, all these phrases that are found, in the texts that are coming up, we also have to stop and recognize the place in which we are coming from. And maybe, just maybe, by revisiting Jesus once again, all of that that we've come from will be revisited. I mean, that song, Lord of All, had all the right passages from Romans. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. But the context in which it was set and the kind of Christianity from where it grew out of is a different kind of expression than what I've come to understand. And so that's a little bit of where we're headed today. What do we actually mean when we say that Jesus is Lord of all? And what did the gospel writers actually mean? To do that, we're going to look at two main biographies, one of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, but the other one about Mary. And I think what's in this setup of Zechariah and Mary, and John is in there as well, prior to the birth of Jesus, is really critical for understanding how, what, how Luke is going to move us to consider carefully the main categories, the main ways in which we understand ourselves, our faith, and how we organize ourselves in this world. Let's start in verse 5 of chapter 1 of Luke. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Now this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is the first setup. Now what is immediately noticed in that passage is that they are barren. And if you are familiar with the passages in the Hebrew text, the texts that lead up to the New Testament story you will know that barrenness is actually a significant theme that emerges over and over again. Consider Abram and Sarai, Isaac and Rebekah, and Elkanah and Hannah. Some very famous stories about uh, couples who could not have children. And in each of these particular instances, there's a couple things that happen. Number one, God shows up in a miraculous and uh, uh, unreasonable way, and they have children. And the second thing is that those children are significant turning points in the life of Israel. So for Abram and Sarai, uh, the turning point is the covenant that is going to be made and about how all the nations will be blessed as a result of their offspring. For Isaac and Rebekah, the very name Israel is going to come out of their barrenness. The name Jacob, the one who wrestles and struggles with God, is going to be renamed Israel. And for Hannah and Elkanah. Their barrenness gives birth to Samuel, the significant changing and shifting point from the judges, a time when you are ruled by judges, to the kings in adopting a new way of governance. And so in each and every one of these stories, there's a significant turn, an upending, a subversion, a shift, an evolution of the way in which faith was realized in the new world through that story. And so Elizabeth and Zechariah not being able to have children is doing a very similar thing. Listen to how the story continues on. Once when he was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. The story continues where the angel Gabriel shows up to Zechariah in the sanctuary, gives him a prophetic declaration, you're going to have a child and you're going to name him John. Now, I want to ask this question. Why, John? If you remember, Israel has organized itself into three main categories that we've talked about before that some of you may be familiar with. Those three main categories are prophet, priest, and king. It's a way of organizing yourselves politically, civically, you know, socially. It's a way of making sure that different areas have different uh, responsibilities. So a prophet is supposed to speak to the people. A king is supposed to govern the civic organization. And a priest is to perform the religious duties and in many ways speak to God on behalf of the people. But something is changing here with the name John. And what seems to be happening in the text is that Zechariah, because in the text it says like, why are you naming him John? There's nobody in your family line that is named John. And it seems to be that the priestly lineage of Zechariah is being addressed. And notice who this John is going to be. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is not a priestly duty. This is a prophetic duty. And so the first thing that I'd like to propose to us is that Zechariah and the entire story around Zechariah is really the category of religion that is being transformed and upended. And instead of a priestly continuance of Zechariah's line in the person of John, the setup to Jesus is that even the religion is going to be disruptive because out of a priesthood, out of the priestly lineage, is going to come a prophet. Everyone is expecting Zechariah to give John the name of somebody of his ancestors because he's a priest and that's how it works. That's not how it works, according to Jesus. It is being disrupted, it Is being upended. Out of the priesthood, this aristocratic priestly class of a people, you're going to get a different category, prophet. And this prophet is going to upend things and going to ultimately prepare the way for Jesus. The second story is Mary. Listen to what Luke writes here. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The first setup was Zechariah. Now the second setup is this person, Mary, who is a poor peasant girl who's in a different region, Galilee. She's going to come from a different line, a different lineage from the son of David, which is much more a political line, but she is poor as well. She's also possibly an outcast because, you know, she got pregnant before uh, she was married. And Gabriel shows up again to her. She is perplexed, Luke writes. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You will name him Jesus. Jesus. Now, this name Jesus, again, we've gotten so used to, think back to your history, think back to your Carmen concerts that you went to. This name Jesus is actually deeply politically profound. It is the word in Hebrew, Yeshua, which is also the same, comes from the same root as the word Joshua, Yehoshua, Hosea, Hoshea, and Hosanna, which we talk about on Palm Sunday, the word Hoshiana. And the word means, the name means God's salvation. It is a declaration that the one who is going to come to save his people, going to save the people from corruption and greed and all sorts of bad acting on the the part of political powers, that kind of salvation is going to come. And it's not going to come, once again, from somebody who's in the upper class. It's going to come from the peasant class. Listen to how Luke writes about, or or Luke writes about what Gabriel says about this Jesus that is coming. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And notice that Gabriel doesn't get upset at Mary. The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. Now listen to those phrases. Reign, kingdom, rule, throne, and then this last phrase, Son of God. In the first century, we know of somebody who called themselves the Son of God. His name was Octavian. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar, as what's known as the first emperor of Rome, when he dies, the year that he dies, a comet shows up in the sky. And the mythology and the story that grows up around Julius Caesar is that that comet was actually Julius ascending to the heavens where he belongs. Why? Because he is the divine God. Notice this coin. Around one of the rays that is coming out of the sun, there's fire around the edges, just like a comet. And so, as the stories around Julius Caesar begin to emerge, Julius's adopted son, Caesar Augustus, excuse me, I gave it away, Julius's son, Octavian, changes his name to Caesar Augustus, takes on the moniker, the August one, the worshipped one. Because he was the Son of God and adopted and used that to declare his rule and reign over the Roman Empire. He would also use words like Savior and Lord in Greek, soter and kurios. So please hear this. When Luke is writing these phrases about Jesus, this is a deeply politically subversive phraseology about who this Jesus is. The famous passage in chapter 2 that we read during Christmas time. Says this, to you is born this day in the city of David. Listen to these words a soter who is the Christos, the Kyrios, a Savior who is the Messiah, who is the Lord. These are all subversively political terms. The second category that these texts are dealing with and addressing, in addition to religion, is now politics. And these two now come together to form the full-orbed categories in which Jesus is now not just Lord over our personal lives, but over all of the institutions and systems in which we order ourselves. Politics and religion become these two main categories that are going to be addressed over and over and over throughout the rest of the themes of the life of Jesus when it comes to compassion, when it comes to justice, when it comes to healing, when it becomes, comes to finances, all of the things that are coming in the rest of the gospel according to Luke are going to fall within these categories. And what is happening is a full redemption of them both. How we view that for ourselves today is the great challenge. There's a couple possibilities. We have personal and societal categories in which we organize ourselves and think about ourselves. We're living in a day and age in which identities are Being talked about frequently as far as our political engagement and how we understand who we are in this world. We're operating within systems and what we talked about several weeks ago, structures of earthly existence. And what I'd like to share with us is just a simple principle that we can flesh out and consider and discuss and debate, which is how is it that we understand Jesus? Now, not just coming to save us from our personal sins, which is how it is conceived and how I understood it when I did the Holy Ghost hop so many years ago at that Carmen concert. How is it that this Jesus is coming to disrupt everything? And how is Jesus going to become Lord, Master, Curios, Savior of it all? To be a follower of Jesus means that there isn't anything within my life in which that is off limits to Jesus, in which my identity, however I see myself, Jesus has come to be Lord of all. Remember, Zechariah was a priest, and out of the priestly line came a prophet. And then my engagement with politics, my engagement with the world, remember this peasant girl, out of that comes a king and disrupts even that. So whatever my political affiliations might happen to me, my question is, is Jesus even Lord over that? And I would like to encourage us all to consider very carefully. This is the good news. Not that we have our own personal agendas. Not that we get to co-opt Jesus and these terms and these ways and to use them in the ways in which we desire. Not just so that we get to have a Christianity that's comfortable and safe to us. And not just that we have a Christianity that only deals with me personally and the interior of my life. But these passages and these stories call us to a much broader understanding that there isn't anything in our lives and in our systems in which Jesus does not have authority over. And our work and our call as disciples and followers of Jesus is to make that happen even more, starting here and then all the way out to our systems. The last thing that I wanted to share with you before we go is I have heard frequently in this time, in this challenging context in which we're in, that the real issues that are facing us today are interior issues, salvation issues, personal issues. And oftentimes that is used to speak only to the peasant people. Hey, listen, all of you Don't you understand what it means to love your neighbor and to love your enemy? You should be doing that to make societal and systemic change in this world. But the story of Zechariah tells us is that the salvation of God and the lordship of Jesus comes to even them. So wherever anybody might happen to be in a political power, in a political state, in a higher class, in a religious aristocratic line, guess what? Jesus has come to be Lord even over that. I think we miss the redemption of Jesus frequently in our context because it is so individualized and because it is so much for those of us who might happen to be in a lower class, an encouragement and a challenge to those who are the oppressed. It is frequently said that Jesus is with those who are poor and the oppressed, and that is absolutely true. But what I also see is that this is a call and a challenge to those who happen to be not oppressed, to those who happen to be in power, to those who happen to be of the higher class. Is and can Jesus truly be Lord over you as well? And what would this world be? This is my continual theme and my continual thinking and dream perhaps is that if the rulers and the authorities of our world were truly no longer rulers and authorities, but they too submitted themselves to the Lordship of Jesus, what kind of world would this be? And I was sharing this with uh, my small group this week, and one of the members of the group said this thing that I thought was absolutely beautiful. If the rulers and the powers and the politicians and the priests of our day were to truly follow Jesus in the way that Jesus called us, maybe these systems wouldn't even exist in the first place. And I so love that insight because I see in that comment a push that was started many years ago by the writer of Luke in telling the story of Zechariah and Mary and of John and of Jesus. Out of a priest comes a prophet to declare the return. And out of a peasant girl comes a king to disrupt the powers and the authorities and to declare and to push forward a new kingdom, a new rule and a new reign in which Jesus truly is Lord over all. As we move into a time of communion, we are going to take a sacrament that reminds us of exactly this, that Jesus, by taking his body and his blood, we are commemorating once again his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And it is through that moment that Jesus becomes once again Lord over everything. So as we take communion together, I would encourage you to consider and ponder and study and submit our hearts once again. Is there anything in my life and in this world that needs to come under the Lordship of Jesus? And if it did, what kind of beautiful kingdom Would that be with Jesus ultimately in charge? For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. My friends, the body and the blood of this Lord has been shed for you. All are welcome, every single one of you at this table, to submit yourselves once again to the Lordship of Jesus.